I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Uh, It's generally said by incompetent people climbing up the corporate ladder in front of you. You're like, how are you getting a raise instead of me? And they're like, you know, condescendingly, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But uh, it's also not just said in uh, in that light, it's said in some positive cases as well. You know, like if, uh, let's say you're driving too fast and you get pulled over, but your dad happens to be the chief of police. It's like, not what you know, you know. I mean, that's never happened to me personally before, but just using as an example. But. Or if uh, maybe your favorite pair of shoes of all time happens to be re-releasing on December 8th, and like the last time this happened, people literally died trying to get their hands on a pair. I mean, this is just a huge, huge deal. And so you happen to know a guy in the shoe industry at this point, and so, you know, it's not what you know, it's, it's, it's who you know. Again, I wouldn't know personally anything uh, about that, but... Uh, Uh, The reason I bring all this up is because we've been in the season of Advent looking at the genealogy of Jesus, and what we're going to discover today is that it's not what you know, it's who you know, and we're just on the same page moving forward. I can catch us all up rather quickly. A guy named Matthew, who's a disciple of Jesus, he wrote down the account of Jesus's life for us. He recorded it for, for us in a book called Matthew, and from his birth to death, burial, and resurrection, he set out to write an account of all of the events. Yet before he recorded any of that, before he wrote any sort of miracles, before he wrote anything about healings, before he wrote uh, anything about doctrine, Matthew gives us the lineage of Jesus. He did that primarily because he was a Jew and he was writing to Jews and uh, they knew that there was this long prophesied Messiah. And this was a big deal because for thousands of years, uh, Jews had been looking for this king that God had promised their forefather, Abraham. And uh, it's worth pointing out that at the time, the Jews had the exact same Old Testament that you guys have in your hands this morning. Now, it was uh, obviously written in, in Hebrew, not English, uh, and it was not bound up nicely for us in a book, and the order was a little bit different. They had things in scrolls, but essentially, it's the exact same thing that you are holding this morning. And because of that, Jews knew uh, that this Old Testament, uh, this Old Covenant, as it is, is known, prophesied a Savior who would do something to restore this relationship that was fractured by disobedience and sin uh, between man and God. It happened with Adam and Eve, but more recently in Jewish uh, history, it happened again like with the Ten Commandments and sacrifices and, and all of that. So again, Matthew's goal was to prove to the Jews that Jesus was that long prophesied Savior. And what's super important to the Jews with regards to fulfillment of this messianic prophecy was ancestry. Uh, They were experts in the Old Testament. Because of this, they knew that the Messiah had to be related to Abraham and David. David. And I understand some of that is lost on us because we're not Jewish. We're 2,000 years removed from the life of Jesus. And so uh, the reason we're looking at the genealogy isn't so much to prove that Jesus was qualified to be that person because of his blood lies, but rather we're looking at the story uh, because I want to show you that it couldn't be made up because of who 
is in the family. Uh, like if you are a Jew and you were uh, super uh, uh, wanted to know who was in the ancestry and, and bloodlines were like the most important thing to you, I guarantee you, you're going to admit omit some of the people listed in the family tree. And here's the deal. You could do that and not lose any credibility. You know, think about somebody like Tamar. We talked about Tamar a few weeks ago. Matthew made a point to list her, but he didn't have to. He could have just listed Judah and his sons within the genealogy. But Matthew went out of his way to name her and a gal named Rahab. We talked about Rahab last week. If you were here, you know that Rahab is a prostitute. That's not something you'd necessarily want to bring up at the family reunion. You know what I'm saying? Like, who is that? Oh, it's just Mima. She, you know, she's the hooker of the family. So uh, my, my point is that, that Matthew could have left out some of these names and not compromise the integrity of the narrative. But again, he goes out of his way to include them. And the reason that's significant, besides the fact I believe that you can trust the Bible because of it, is you could take some encouragement knowing that Jesus was family was all jacked up just like yours and the reason we're taking four Sundays to talk about the dysfunctional family Christmas is because uh, I want you to know that that's what Jesus's family was and and I know on some level yours is too because we all have a crazy uncle or we have that you know a, a cousin that we'd rather not talk to or perhaps an eccentric aunt and if you're thinking I don't know anybody like in my family like that in fact, I can't, Pastor, I can't think of a single person in my family that's dysfunctional. Might I submit to you? Everybody else in your family knows who that person is. It's you. It's you. But I'm glad you're here. You should be here for this. Uh, because I, I'm trying to teach you how to put the fun back into dysfunction. And the entire premise for this ser- four-week series together is this. You might jot this down. Jesus didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners. That's what I really want you to get a hold of this uh, Advent season, that Jesus didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners. So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you open it up to the very beginning, that's the book of Genesis. Keep turning. You need to go through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. That's where we were at last week. And then Judges, and finally, we're in the book of Ruth. We're going to look at Ruth today because I want you to see that Ruth and her husband Boaz are not the picture-perfect couple you would expect to find in the family tree of Jesus. Uh, Here's how our boy Matthew recorded the lineage. He wrote, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Again, if you missed it, you can check it out online. We, We talked about her last week. Then he wrote, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And why is Obed important? Because Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David, who was legit, right? killed a giant, wrote a whole bunch of songs, and he was awesome and remembered forever. Now, to be fair, the reason why I describe Ruth and Boaz is dis- as dysfunctional is not so much because of their character qualities. You know, it's not like they were first cousins and married and living in a trailer, you know, drinking Milwaukee's Best, smoking menthols, and watching Prices Right, okay? I mean, that's not why... Yes, Pastor, that sounds a lot like my week. Okay, I apologize. Uh, You're not dysfunctional. I already said you were dysfunctional, so awkward. But uh, 
the word dysfunction, it simply means to deviate from societal norms. And you might want to know that that's not everybody's norm if that's what you're doing. But neither is Ruth and Boaz's life. That's what I'm getting at. So I'm going to show you. You should have found Ruth by now. Let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. Feels like the beginning of land before time or something, right? In the days of the dinosaurs. But this is just a time stamp. You know, this is where we're at historically when the judges ruled. So if you read the book of Judges, that's where we're at historically before there was a king. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilion. Uh, in my translation, it says Chilion, which I like way better, but you're technically supposed to pronounce it Kilion, but whatever. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, a couple quick things to put this into context. First of all, here, it says here that there was a famine in Bethlehem. We don't have time to read about it, but in Scripture, we learn that this famine is caused by God because of the disobedience of the people of Bethlehem. That's not the reason for every famine in the world. We just know that that's the reason for this particular famine. And then it says, uh, instead of trusting God, instead of repenting for their disobedience, Elimelech and his wife Naomi decide to take matters into their own hands and leave Bethlehem and go to Moab. We're also told in Scripture that Moab and and the citizens there, the Moabites, they are enemies of God. They were founded by a series of incestuous relationships. They serve a false god named Chemosh and a bunch of his other false gods around him. They do all kinds of horrible, wicked things to serve those graven images. If you know your Bible, you know that there's a weird story in there about a guy named Balaam and his talking donkey. And uh, Balaam converts some of the Israelites to this Moabite god, which, which further you know, uh, solidifies this, this gap between God and the Moabite people. And uh, these are adversaries, they are foes, they are antagonists of the one true God of the Bible. So hear me, of all the places this family should have gone during a famine, Moab should not at all have made the list. This is like you or me moving to the godless city of Manhattan, to the campus of K-State, okay? This is, I apologize. I had to get one more K-State joke in before the end of the year. Nailed it, okay? Now, (laughs) you're welcome. So, stay with me because this family went to sojourn in Moab. Uh, They should not at all have been there, which that word sojourn, it means to stay temporarily. That's what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, They should have stayed there until the famine ended, but it's not what happens because verse 2 it says, and they remained there. Bad move. What happens? Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies. She's left with her two sons. <coughs> Excuse me. These took Moabite wives. Another bad move. Expressly forbidden by God. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Why? Because comfort causes complacency. And in God's economy, complacency is a dangerous place to be because it requires no faith. It requires no trust in God. If you're complacent in life, if you're comfortable in life, might I suggest to you to do something to stretch your faith. 
because comfort and complacency is not Christ-like. Now, don't misunderstand me. Contentment is absolutely Christ-like. That's different. There's a lot of C words in there. I understand that. Content is how you should live. Comfortable, complacent, that's not what God wants for you. Watch what complacency and comfortableness causes here in verse 5. Both Milan and Kilion die, so that the woman is left without her two sons and her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. They'd repented of their sin. God shows up, ends the famine. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. That seems typical. Uh, no, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. Even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again, they wept together. Women are always crying. I don't get it. Uh, And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. That's an interesting word in the Hebrew, the word clung. It literally means to fasten yourself to or to stick yourself to. And it's used elsewhere, that same Hebrew word, to describe your relationship with God. You should cling to God. You should fasten yourself to God. Every day when you get, up, get dressed and you button up the shirt and you, you button up the pants... In fairness, I guess, if you're like my wife and her group of friends, they only wear sweatpants all day, so this would not at all apply to any of them. They would not understand this analogy. But if you button up your shirt and clothes in the morning, the the thought you should have in your mind is, I should be doing this with God. I should be fastening myself to God. I should be Velcroing myself to God. Watch this, verse 15. This is so good. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord, all caps, punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. So, Naomi tries to send her daughters-in-law back, send Ruth back to her home and her gods. But what does Ruth say? I don't want my gods anymore. I want your God. And notice she doesn't just use the word God, Elohim, as it would be translated. She uses the word, may the Lord, all caps, punish me if anything but death separates us. Anytime Lord is all caps in your Bible, keep in mind it's translating the word Yahweh, the covenantal name of God. It's hard for us to grasp this in English because we don't really have an equivalent idea. It's the best way I can describe it is if somebody says God versus 
God. You know how some people like change their dialect when they're talking about the Lord God. Okay, This is the equivalent, that God's name is being invoked, his proper name. It's not just the, the, the small word God. Uh, this is what's going on here. And this is super important because Ruth at this point is invoking the name of Yahweh and she's binding herself to God and to Naomi. So what you're looking at here ladies and gentlemen, is a conversion. This is a Moabite taking on the Jewish tradition of repenting and being saved or being born again, as you've maybe heard it described. That's what this looks like. I'm belaboring this point because Deuteronomy 23.3 says, No Moabite or any of their descendants may enter into the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. So is God a liar? No. Then how can Ruth have been converted? Because when you fasten yourself to God, when you cling to His Son, Jesus Christ, He doesn't see you for what you are. He sees you for who you are. You are not a Moabite. You are not an American. You are not white, Caucasian, African, American, or any of the like. You are a member of the family, a child of God a joint heir with Jesus. What's his is yours. And this is how God sees you now. Your enemy, the devil, and I don't want to give too much credit to the devil. Sometimes you are your own worst enemy. So yes, the devil, but sometimes yes, yourself, your own thoughts. They want you to believe that God can never love you. He would want somebody else than you. You are worthless. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough, and doggone it, nobody likes you, okay? This is what, what they want you to believe, but that's not true. None of us have done anything that God can't forgive, nor are none of us so good that we don't need the forgiveness of God. It's the whole point of the Bible. It's the whole point of G- God sending His Son, Jesus, okay? We've got to keep going. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, chapter 2, there was a wealthy man, an influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. They're poor. They need some food. Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. Oh, it just so happened that she found herself in that field. Uh, Coincidence is often God's way of remaining anonymous. And verse 4, Behold, cue dramatic music, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. In case you didn't know the name Boaz, it means strength. Uh, in other words, he is a dude. Okay, He is a man's man. Boaz does not turn on the shower. He looks at it until it starts to cry. You all know what I'm saying? Like this is, this is, if Jesus walked on water, Boaz could swim on land. All right? This is, he's an amazing, I'm told that Boaz built the hospital he was born in. Okay? He's just an unbelievable, unbelievable person. 
And he, Boaz, said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. They answered, no, the Lord bless you. Just out of curiosity, how many of you all go into your workplace and when the boss comes in, he says, hey, may the Lord of God, Jesus, bless you. And everybody peeks their head out of their office or their cubicle and says, and also with you, you know, boss man. (coughs) Nobody. Okay, yeah, that's what I figured. Uh, Point is, this guy is great and everybody loves him. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? That was a different time. Okay, we can't use that now, but uh, that's what he asked. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. That is to say, she is a hard-working woman, country girl, strong, men. These are the qualities you should look for in a woman. Loyal and hardworking. That's what's really attractive. Because listen to me, that's what's going to last. Loyalty, strength of spirit, willingness to work. Furthermore, I think it's worth pointing out, this is not what I want to preach to you on, but I think it's worth pointing out, that there is no way Ruth looked good physically in this moment. A, she's been on a multiple day journey, a walk from Moab to Bethlehem. B, she's poor, which is why she has to be out in the field to begin with. C, she's been in the hot sun all day. She's oily, she's grimy, her nails are all busted off. The one article of clothing that she has is likely all torn up and raggedy. She stinks, she's sunburned, which is not a good thing back then. Okay, they wanted their women pale because it meant they were rich, that they didn't have to be outside in the sun. Ruth had no intention of meeting a man on this day. And you think about it, most women that I know, if they know they're, if they realize they're going to meet a man as significant as Boaz, they're spending untold hours spray painting and sandblasting and doing unspeakable things to their body to get ready for the occasion. So ladies, if you're still waiting on your Boaz, don't fret over what you look like. God will get their attention for you. And if you're wondering, how do I know if I have discovered my Boaz? A couple questions. Number one, does he have a job? Is he employed? Boaz is employed. He is a wealthy man. He owns a lot of fields. He is not living at home. And he, uh, if your man is not employed and still living at home, he is not marriage material. Okay? He is just a toddler in a man's body. That brother Benjamin Button or whatever. You know, okay? he's not, he's not, don't waste your time on him. Okay? Question one, does he have a job? Question two, do people like him? Okay, I've had way too many conversations with uh, girls who make excuses of their man, for their man because he's an idiot and a jerk. And they're like, oh, you just don't know him like I do. You know, he's had a hard week. We all have, okay? I mean, so that's not an excuse that you can use, uh, especially if they're just dumb. So are they employed? Do people like them? Those are the two questions you need to be asking yourself, ladies. Moving on. So much good stuff in here, okay? I need to preach Ruth sometime. Verse 8, Boaz went over to Ruth and said, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting, then follow them. 
I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. In other words, I own a lot of fields. They'll never find the body. Okay, that's what he's saying. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water that they have drawn from the well. That's a huge deal. The women should be drawing for the men, not the men for the women. To be sure, all of this is simply Old Testament pickup lines. Okay, but Boaz basically is saying, you know, hey, baby, I'm going to leave out some extra grain and water for you. Okay, (laughs) sounds weird, I know, uh, but it worked. Okay, better than any line I've used, because watch what happens. Verse 10, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked. I'm only a foreigner. I've used some killer lines in my day, gentlemen. Uh, I remember when I met Laura, it was a Sunday. I said, girl, you have got to be breaking Old Testament law because you are working it on the Sabbath. You see what I'm saying? Like it's just a, it was just a, great, just a great lie, okay? Here's what's never happened. She's never fallen down at my feet. <laughs> Thanked me warmly. So maybe, maybe try this, man. You know, give her some food and water, see what happens, okay? No. <laughs> We don't have time to read the rest of the story, but you all know what happens because we read Matthew 1. They get married. They live happily ever after. They have a son. Uh, and what does that mean for you today? How does this a story apply at all aside from who should I marry and how do I use pickup lines? Let me help you. Write this down. At the center of dysfunction is the need for control. Okay, that's what we're going to discover. At the center of dysfunction is the need for control. The reason your life is not going the way you thought it would is because you still believe you can will your way into results without trusting God for them. And your life is dysfunctional because of it. The reason you haven't got that job, the reason you haven't got out of debt, the reason you haven't met your Ruth or your Boaz, the reason you're still addicted, the reason you're always anxious, is not because God doesn't want to change those things for you. It's because you think you can control the outcome when you can barely control yourself. Again, it's causing dysfunction. I heard somebody say this week that I'm putting off my normal day-to-day anxiety for my fancy Christmas anxiety. It's about right. It's how we describe the season. It's chaotic, it's stressful, it's busy, but uh, that's not how God wants you living your life, especially in the season of his birth, his son's birth, who came to bring peace to the world. And what you need to hear me say is that the answer is in your attitude. Uh, You've got to change your mindset. You can choose today to put God back into the driver's seat and follow him instead of following yourself. Because at the center of your dysfunction is your need to control everything. Think about the dichotomy between Ruth's story and Naomi's story. Naomi tried to control the results of a famine by moving away. She tried to control Ruth and Orpah's future by sending them back to their home. If you read on, you'd read about how uh, Naomi tried to control Ruth and Boaz's relationship and tried to, you know, orchestrate things to, to work out in her favor. What's Ruth's attitude? Ruth's all about obedience. She's all about trust. It's about aligning herself with God clinging to Yahweh. It was not 
that, that Ruth was waiting around for God to move on her behalf. She did some things. You know, her faith led to action. And, and so let me help you today if you're struggling, the dysfunction in your life, here's how you can solve that consistent action, bring about consistent results. But you know that's true. I mean, you know that consistently eating junk food, never working out, uh, it's going to lead to weight gain. You know the power of habits. We did a whole series about that. And you know that uh, if you consistently spend more than you make, you're going to go into debt. And if you never go to class, you're not going to get good grades. And if you don't ever show love to your spouse, then your marriage is not going to be good. And you've heard the saying that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. So I don't think that's new news, that consistent action brings consistent results. And here's what we can learn from Ruth. Before God changes our circumstances, he must first change our heart. That's the big idea. Since at the center of dysfunction is your need for control, and since consistent actions bring about consistent results, if you're consistently trying to control the outcome, that's what you're going to get. And until God changes your heart, and you stop trying to control everything, and you start relying on Him, then your circumstances, they're never going to get better. Again, it's not that God doesn't want those things for you. It's just that God knows if he changed our circumstances for the better, but we remain the same on the inside, we'll become worse for it. We'll become conceited and we become proud and self-promoting. We'll start thinking about, oh, look what I did. And we'll think everything is about us and what we accomplish. And when it's not true, this life is about God. It's not about you, okay? And so the question now becomes, well, how does God change our hearts? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked it because it brings us full circle to how I started this morning when I said it's not, not about what you know, it's about who you know. The only way God can change your heart is through the power of his Holy Spirit who was given to us by Jesus Christ. And what's cool about this story with Ruth and Boaz is we get a crystal clear example of how Jesus and his Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Uh, can change your life by looking at how Ruth knew Boaz. So I'm sure you understand that culturally things were a little bit different back then, and this could never happen today. But in the time when judges ruled, if you were an Israelite and you had property, and you had to sell the property because of trouble or danger or need, like a famine, uh, and you sold your property and you left, a male relative could come in and buy back that property, or as they called it, redeem it. And they could redeem the property. The same thing was true with marriage, by the way. If you had a relative whose husband had died, you could redeem his wife and his children by marrying them because orphans and widows were the most vulnerable citizens within a town. Keep in mind, there is no government to keep you safe. There are no programs. There are no non-profits. There's nobody to help you besides your tribe. And so you need to belong to a tribe. God made a way for that to happen with a kinsman redeemer. This is what Scripture qualifies that person as. Someone who can come in and redeem you. A kinsman redeemer. Boaz had that opportunity with Ruth. He was a relative of Elimelech, Ruth's father-in-law. Question is, why would Boaz want to redeem Ruth and Naomi? Especially because Ruth 
is a Moabite. Also keep in mind, there was another relative uh, closer in relationship to Elimelech than Boaz. And so he had the first opportunity to redeem Ruth. And he was like, no, bro, you go ahead. And so Boaz takes the opportunity to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Why? It's my contention. The reason Boaz chose to redeem Ruth and buy back this property that Naomi and Elimelech had to sell is because he knew his mother's story. Remember who Boaz's mother was? Rahab, the prostitute. I'm sure at some point in life, Boaz did what all of you have done and asked your parents, he asked his mom Rahab, hey, how'd you and dad meet? And Rahab probably left out a lot of the details, but she probably talked about how she was a refugee and she was an enemy of God. And God brought a man uh, to come in and save her, a man named Salmon, Boaz's dad. And Salmon didn't see Rahab for who she was, but rather he saw her for what she could be. And it had such an impact on Boaz. That story, as he saw Ruth, not for who she was, but for who God made her to be. Can I just tell you, as we get ready to close this morning, that this redemption story, it could be your story. God knows everything that you have done, but he also knows who you can become. And like Ruth, he's provided you a kinsman redeemer. Someone that can come alongside you and redeem you. And you should fall down at his feet and say, what have I done to deserve such kindness, Jesus? I'm a foreigner. I'm a sinner. Why would you die for me? Just like Ruth could offer Boaz absolutely nothing to benefit his life, you think about what can you offer God that he didn't give you to begin with? And yet, he says, no, 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 no. You're part of my family. I'm coming in to redeem you. Write this down and then we're done. Every person has a past, but every believer has a future. Somebody say amen better than that. Everybody has a past, but every believer has a future. And listen to me, your future is bright. It's favorable. It's blessed. Hear me, I don't care what the world is telling you. Your best is absolutely yet to come. But it starts with a change of heart. It starts with you relinquishing control of your life. It starts with you trusting God for your future. That he has your best interest in mind. That he came so you might have life and have it to the full. That God is not trying to keep anything from you. That what your heart is longing for isn't the best thing that God wants for you. That's what's at stake for you this morning to give up that control of your life. And make no mistake, that's a scary place to be. I understand that. But listen to me. I promise we're done. God is good. God is good. He has your best interest in mind. His way is way better than your way. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, I'm asking you to do what only you can do this morning and open up our hearts Open up our eyes, open up our ears, help us hear from you. Help us see these spots in life that we're clinging on to. God, we want to live open-handedly. Everything is yours to begin with. 
We're giving over control. We're giving over our marriages. We're giving over our children. We're giving over our finances. God, where are you leading us? As you continue to pray, as you continue to reflect on what God's trying to speak to your heart this morning, again, God loves you. He cares for you. He provided a way for you to be redeemed through his son, Jesus. Some of you, that might be the words God is speaking right now. He's saying, trust me. You might have been going to church your whole life, never really believed in Jesus. Your time is now. Just pray with me. God, I believe in your son, Jesus, that he died for me, that he loves me, that he's redeemed me. Forgive me of my sin. Draw me close to you. See your son Jesus in me. Thank you for saving me. God, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for the power that we have in his Holy Spirit. I ask you to do again what only you can do and fill us up right now. Give us an encouraging day. Help us leave this place full of your glory. Meet with us right here, right now. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.